I don't automatically assume that they're unhealthy just because of the size of their body. Or on the flip side, I don't assume that someone who comes in that's in a quote, regular BMI category is automatically healthy either. Welcome to How Do You Feel, a podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hello everyone, welcome to How Do You Feel? Hello out there from my own little self-isolated quarantine. I hope everyone has survived their first full week of social isolation okay. I know it's been very bizarre for us trying to adjust to what's going to be our new normal. I don't know about you guys, but it felt like the week was actually a month. It felt so long and I think that's because When you sit at home all day, the days kind of drag on and all blend together. Two big things are standing out to me looking back on the week. First of all, I'm very impressed with how many things can be moved to a virtual version of them. So at All Day Fit, we've put workouts online. We're doing group workouts through Zoom. I had a workshop this past weekend for nutritional therapy, and it was supposed to be an in-person hands-on workshop, and we took the entire workshop online. So it's very cool to see people become adaptive, continue their businesses, and continue to provide services through this magical, amazing thing called the internet. We're very lucky that this is happening now in the age where technology really does allow us to continue on with a lot of things, even though we can't necessarily be there in person and we can't be within six feet of one another. At the same time, while I'm impressed with how many things can be virtual, I think we're also going to learn that nothing can replace human connection. When you look at the bigger picture of technology and how much it's infiltrated our lives and these ideas about artificial intelligence and how it might start to replace what humans can do and all of these things, I think we're going to learn from this and it's really going to solidify that there's a human element that technology can't replace. So it's going to be interesting however long this lasts, whether it's one more week or eight, I'm sending you all good vibes and hoping that you get through this okay, and I hope that we come out on the other side with a massive, huge appreciation for how important it is to have those moments of human connection. Actually, one last thought just came to my mind too, but I'm also very impressed by how this crisis situation is, in a lot of ways, bringing people together even more. Like, no, we can't be in person with one another, but... I'm noticing that it's making me want to reach out to friends and family more to check on them and see how they're doing. And so my lines of communication with people have actually been open way more than normal because of this situation. So I hope that that continues as well because that's definitely a positive effect. I am very excited to bring you this podcast episode today. I'm speaking with Dana Monsies. Dana is an entrepreneur, a podcaster, and a self-proclaimed food lover. She's a board-certified nutritionist, licensed dietitian nutritionist, and body image coach who teaches women how to fix their shitty relationships with food and their bodies, ditch the diet cycle for good, and heal and thrive with real food one delicious meal at a time. 
She has an awesome blog called Real Food with Dana that contains five years worth of whole food, real food recipes. And then she also has a thriving online business where she works with people on their nutrition and their relationship with food. Dana has so much knowledge and information about food and its mental and physical effects on the body. She was open with her story about her eating disorder and her different stages of recovery, so she shared that with us in the episode, but she just provided so many good insights about weight stigma, about why health can exist at every size, and why you don't actually have to want to lose weight. So I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode with Dana Monsies. Well, welcome to How Do You Feel, Dana? I'm so excited to talk to you today. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time now, so this is a really exciting conversation for me. Welcome. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to talk about your experience um, with an eating disorder and what you think contributed to it, and then ultimately how you healed from it. Yeah. Uh, how much time do you have? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I know that's such a massive question. Loaded but. question. Yeah. I'm like, I could talk for hours about this. Um, I swam growing up um, my whole life all the way through college and swimming. We don't really have an off season. We get like three, maybe four weeks off in August in the summer. But besides that, we're training like two hours a day minimum, sometimes doing like two a days and then doing weight training, dry land training, all this kind of stuff. So then I had started to freak out about my weight and my body size in high school and then really in college. So whenever we had time off from swimming, I started looking into like at home body weight workouts and would be doing them all the time and then became obsessed with the scale and counting my food and everything like that. And it really turned into an eating disorder in college in the off season. Later, many years later, I would figure out that I had celiac disease, but I didn't know why I was feeling so sick. So this kind of started uh, my freshman, sophomore year in college. And I, at this point, had already been freaking out about, oh my gosh, what am I going to do in the off season? Like I'm used to training two, four or five hours a day and now nothing. And it's like, well, you're supposed to take a break during that time. That's called why it's called the off season, right? But I was <laughs> terrified of gaining any weight. So I started to do all these intense workouts. I started running like many, many, many miles a day would be spending hours at the gym. It was, you know, wow. not great and restricting my food at the same time. And then it turned into a full-blown eating disorder. I was bulimic. I would skip meals. I was extremely orthorexic tendencies. I would go to the gym and like try and work off all of the food that I ate, even though it was not a lot, you know, all of the things. I was also feeling very sick at this time because I was still eating gluten, if only occasionally, because that was one of the things that I was restricting. And this was before gluten-free was popular. Um, so I didn't really know that that was a thing. I had tried, I went to school in Vermont. So there are different uh, like naturopathic doctors up there that were like really hippy dippy at the time. And they were like, well, maybe you should try cutting out this food. Maybe you should try cutting out this food. And what would happen was I would cut out one food, but then eat a lot of, or, you know, relatively a lot of the other ones that were also making me feel sick because my system was all sorts of messed up at this time. And so then it felt like no matter what I ate, 
I felt sick. So I just started restricting my food because I was like, if I don't eat, then I feel a lot better. And then eventually that would turn into what I thought was a like loss of willpower and like loss of discipline. And then I would binge and then I would purge and it would just be a whole spiral that finally, like years later of going through this, I like very vividly remember like crying on my bathroom floor and being like, I just, I just can't do this anymore. So I started looking into using food for healing and like seeing different practitioners and trying to work my way through this. I did a couple of online courses. I never actually um, got diagnosed with an eating disorder because I never went to see anyone about it because mm-hmm. I didn't think that that was in, like, I didn't think I was, you know, sick enough. I didn't think it was a problem. I also didn't want to tell anyone about it um, because part of that is like admitting vulnerability and admitting weakness. And so that wasn't something that I was ready to do at the time. So with the help of a lot of my own research, going back to school, a lot of different online courses and stuff, I finally like started to work my way out of it. But at that time, my eating disorder had just turned into a disordered way of using elimination diets to continue to control my size. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I finally realized that I was using all these different like protocols that I said for healing as just a way to control my weight and control my size and, you know, all of the things that were wrapped up in that, you know, institutionalized fat phobia, weight stigma, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um that also informed my business, which is interesting because a lot of us who go into the field of nutrition and dietetics, um, we kind of feel like, oh, I'm obsessed with food and like I might as well go into dietetics, right? Um, or go into nutrition. And so that's kind of what I did. And it wasn't until the past, let's say, year or two when I finally started really diving deep more into like weight inclusive care and health at every size and learning about the social justice side of this that I realized so many people were doing the same patterns that I had of using these elimination diets under the guise of trying to heal themselves, right? But really just trying to control their size, to control their weight, to fit their body into a certain mold because no one wants to be judged and discriminated against by society, by the medical field, by everyone. So that's a long way of saying that finally my business evolved to where it is today, where I'm a non-diet dietitian nutritionist. I work from a health at every size, weight inclusive approach. And what I try and do is use the power of nutrition in a non-diet, non-restrictive way for healing chronic health conditions and digestive issues while also helping people fix their relationship with food. (laughs) So many layers there, which you had to go through too. I can't imagine, like I have an experience and a bit of a history with an eating disorder as well. And I was in that, I was in the restrict and then binge and purge cycle also, but I didn't have that added layer of having foods that I wasn't tolerable of. So then you have this added layer of when you do eat, it doesn't even make you feel good. So I can't even imagine how hard that was to sort of like climb your way out of. But it's interesting because when you have those experiences, it probably makes you so much better at helping people through all of those nuances now because you had to navigate them and without help, which is, I mean, kudos to you for getting to this place because it's almost <laughs> <I don't>, impossible <laughs> without help. I, like, say, I don't, for all of my clients, I do not recommend that to anyone. Like the first thing, like, reach out to a practitioner, like reach out to a therapist, reach out to a nutritionist or dietitian who does this, like 
non-restrictive approach who also works on the body image and relationship with food side of things, because that's a big part of it too, is a lot of the reason why people fall into these patterns is because we've been dieting for so long. We've been exposed to so much information that basically tells us there are good and bad foods. And then we attach this morality to food and we start to feel bad about ourselves if we're ever eating the, you know, no foods. And that sends us right back into the binge restrict cycle. Right. Exactly. Let's dive a little bit more into this concept of using diets like Whole30 as healing methods or like elimination diets in general, really. So you started out being all for them. I think that you were a Whole30 like coach or practitioner or something. At one point I was, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fair enough. It's a, you know, it's a point on your journey, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know what we don't know. So that's where you were at one point. But how did you get to the place of realizing that Whole30 and these diets are actually just sort of disguised ways of this same disordered eating cycle? How yeah. did you arrive to that point? Yeah. So my point of entry to those kinds of protocols and diets and you know everything like that is many of them are designed to be fair, like with a therapeutic purpose, right? Mm-hmm. So if we think about certain protocols, like the autoimmune protocol is used for autoimmune disease, right? Like the walls protocol is used for multiple sclerosis, like stuff like that. But the problem is that many of people, many people, the way they approach these protocols is different than the original intention of the program of like, yes, they definitely want to see an improvement in their symptoms, but we're so attached to this dieting mentality that the way that we measure progress is weight loss or shrinking our bodies, right? And so then if someone does a Whole30, an autoimmune protocol, whatever, And they might see some improvements in their health, right? Like regardless of the scale, not including the scale, like maybe your skin clears up, maybe you see a reduction in joint pain or your symptoms or, you know, whatever it is. But then if they don't see weight loss and pretty drastic weight loss along with that because of what they've seen in the marketing for these programs, they think they've done something wrong and they think Mm -hmm. there's something wrong with them. And then they think that the only way to see more progress, aka weight loss for most of these people, right, is to do the program again or to search out another program that's even more restrictive than the first one because we assume that the only way to make progress, aka weight loss, is to restrict, is to limit, is to deprive ourselves because we are so entrenched in this calories in, calories out mathematical way of approaching our body size. With Whole30 in particular, and I use this because this is the most like pertinent example of something like this, right? Like You don't really hear a lot about people going like on and off cycles of the autoimmune protocol or the walls protocol or anything like that, but go anywhere in a Whole30 community and people are talking about how many rounds of Whole30 they've done. I've done a whole 60, I've done a whole 180, I've done, you know, whatever. Just the way that people use that program, they're coming to it, even though they say it's going to fix your relationship with food. It's not a diet. People approach it like a diet. People approach it like a 30 day diet. And then they go, you know, quote off the wagon. And then they feel so bad when they eat all of the foods that they weren't allowed to eat for 30 days that then they feel like the only way that they can feel better again is to do the program again, is to do Mm -hmm. another reset, another detox, another whatever you want to call it. And this is just the yo-yo dieting cycle. This is just cyclical dieting, right? Call it a Whole30, call it a therapeutic elimination protocol, whatever. 
it's still dieting. And it's still, for many people, the root of it is control versus not having control and then weight loss, which like that is a diet. Yeah, exactly. I think for a lot of people, they don't realize the mental toll, the mental effect that it has when you have to cut out full categories of foods and not just for your health, like not if you have celiac disease, that's a whole different topic. But when you have to cut out all added sugars and the rules that that imposes, and then your subsequent reliance on those rules to be doing the right thing, to be eating the right way, that takes a huge toll even when you're off of the Whole30 because you're right, when you don't have those things, you panic a little bit because you were relying on the, the rules so much and that's how we end up attaching morality to food. For example, like the foods with added sugars are bad and ones without are good, but there's no morality to food, right? No foods are good and bad. So I think that people just don't realize the effect that it's having on them and then they're three, four, whole 30 cycles in, because I know many people that this is their, has been their pattern, and all of a sudden, they're like completely wrapped up in this, whether they're on the whole 30 or off. We're going to take a short break from the episode because I have a very important announcement. If you are feeling unmotivated to stick to a workout schedule right now, or you're struggling to figure out what the heck to do at home to stay active, you are not alone, and I am here to help you. Introducing a new service, one-on-one -on -one online coaching. I want to become your personal trainer even while we're all social distancing. Here's what you'll get from starting a program with me. You'll get a four-week personalized strength training program. You'll get ongoing accountability to help you stick to your goals and your program, which is really challenging right now when we're all sitting at home. You'll get full body at home strength workouts customized exactly for whatever space and equipment you have at home. I can also give you suggestions for a few things that you can buy to really maximize your program. Plus, you'll get access to All Day Fit's virtual online classes that we're running seven days a week through Zoom. It's so important to keep moving right now for both your physical and mental health. If you're ready to sign up to start working with me, you can visit alldayfit.com slash online dash hub. That's alldayfit.com slash online dash hub. And you'll find all the details for signing up there. I'll also link that website in the show notes. This online one-on-one -on -one personalized training is a service that All Day Fit has never offered before. So this is your chance to take advantage and start working with me right away. Okay, guys, let's get back to the episode. I want to know more about your philosophy as a dietitian. So what does it mean to be a non-diet dietitian for people that don't know? So I'm a certified nutrition specialist and I'm also a licensed dietitian nutritionist. So I didn't go to an RD program, um, but we have equivalent credentials, I would say. So mm -hmm. I came into this as like a natural progression of my education as a nutrition practitioner, right? Because when I was in school seeing clients, when I was a 30 coach, a whole 30 coach seeing clients, and then in the next couple of years after graduating and getting my license and everything, I was seeing that people will come to me with digestive issues or hormonal issues. And there is a diet for everything, right? There's a protocol for everything. Like you have this symptom, here's a diet. You have this symptom, here's a diet. You have this condition, like here's a diet, right? And while like food is super powerful, right? Like that's why I went into this field in the first place because like cutting out gluten 
helped me heal my celiac disease basically. Right. So like, yes, food is powerful, but at the same time, people give food so much power over them consciously or subconsciously. And then it turns into these like orthorexic tendencies. And then it really turns into these issues around food that the anxiety around these foods can create the same symptoms that you're trying to prevent by eliminating different foods in the first place. Right. So seeing the connection between all of this as I was working with clients and then seeing like, okay, this person has digestive issues. I give them this protocol, but then on the surface level, if that was it, they should have gotten better. Right. But they weren't getting better and they were having all these stresses, all these anxieties and stuff around food. And I realized just giving these people protocols is not making them better. Just fixing the food, you know, quote, fixing the food is not making them better. Just doing food and supplements is not making them better. It's actually perpetuating this diet cycle that they are stuck in, right? Because even though we're trying to do these things to heal the conditions and the symptoms and everything they're experiencing, we're missing this whole other level. And when I realized that it was the protocols, it was the diets, doing those without the mindset work around food anxiety and stress and why we have so many issues with food and a complicated relationship with our bodies and everything, that it wasn't taking it into account the whole picture. So for me, being a non-diet dietitian means I'm helping people here with food, but I don't focus on intentional weight loss and I'm not just here giving out diets willy-nilly. So what I try and do is to go an even more holistic, integrative, intentional approach, if you want to call it. Operating from a weight inclusive approach, which means I will work with someone no matter what their size is, and I'm not going to try and shrink them. And then the same thing with a health at every size of knowing that if someone comes into my practice and they are in a larger body, I don't automatically assume that they're unhealthy just because of the size of their body. Or on the flip side, I don't assume that someone who comes in that's in a quote, regular BMI category is automatically healthy either. And what I try and do is to use health promoting behaviors through mindset, lifestyle, nutrition, gentle movement, stuff like that to actually improve people's health instead of just focusing on dieting and focusing on weight loss and using those as markers of progress. Cool. I love that. I think it's such a delicate balance because I've sort of toyed with this as well between understanding the power that food has, but simultaneously not giving it so much power that like it's the end all be all of your health, right? Like exactly what you're saying, like the way that we feel about our food and our stress and anxiety around it relates so much as well to how our body takes it in, how it's able to nourish us. So it's a very interesting sort of balance to kind of believe in both of those things. I want to talk more about health at every size though. I think that this is such an important concept that not enough people have heard about still. When people claim that they want to lose weight for their health, because that's everywhere, right? Like, well, I just need to lose a few pounds for my health. And whether they're they're saying that realizing that it's actually diet culture is the reason they want to lose weight or not, what do you say to them? What do you say to those people? I actually did a whole video series on this for my online course. So I am Amazing. ready for questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's a lot of layers to this, right? And I think that the first thing that you need to do as a practitioner or anyone who's 
coming into this conversation with the other party saying, I need to lose weight for my health is first to come at it with a mindset of curiosity rather than judgment, right? Because it would be really easy to be like, oh, that's just diet culture. But the other person on the under, on the other end of that conversation is going to be like, what are you talking about? I've been hearing this my whole life. Like I need to lose weight for my health. Mm-hmm. So my then question as a practitioner is like, okay, let's dig into that. Like what, it, what exactly does that mean to you? Okay. Say someone comes to me, I need to lose weight for my health. Okay. What does that look like? If you lost weight, what aspect of your health would that improve? For some people, they're receiving this statement from a medical practitioner, right? So if you go into a doctor's office and you're in a larger body, you're in the overweight or obese BMI category, right? The clinical BMI categories. Then the first thing that the practitioner is going to tell you is to lose weight. Regardless, no matter what you say, yeah. <laughs> doesn't matter what you say, regardless of how your blood work is, regardless of whether you have any symptoms, whatever. They might say, you need to lose weight for my health. And you can ask them, what about my health needs to be improved that could be fixed by losing weight? Because the way that that I like to explain it is, okay, if you have someone in one size body and then you have someone in a larger size body, if you take the person in the larger size body and everything about them except their size and put them in a smaller body, that doesn't change their health. It doesn't change their blood markers. It doesn't change their lifestyle, food, nutrition, habits, their mindset around food, their relationship with food, their genetic predispositions, whether they have diabetes, cancer, heart disease. None of that changes just by putting them in a smaller body, right? So we have to realize that that's a kind of bias that we're actually taught in the medical and in the nutrition research and literature and everything is tied to weight. But what they don't talk about is how a lot of the studies when they correlate people in larger bodies or obesity with diabetes and heart disease and everything like that is they don't talk about how correlation doesn't equal causation. It's not actually just the fact of being in a larger body that's causing someone to get diabetes. Diabetes is what they call a lifestyle disease, meaning that if you eat in a certain way and you choose or not or choose not to move your body in a certain way plus genetic factors and all these things, you might develop insulin resistance leading to metabolic syndrome and diabetes. That can happen to anyone regardless of their size. And then one of the things to think about here also is even when we're looking into the research, many of the times when they're comparing a quote healthy population that happens to be in a smaller body and they're comparing that to a larger bodied population they don't actually talk about the foods that these people are eating. They don't talk about whether they smoke or not. They don't talk about whether they drink or not. And that's a really easy way to institute some research bias if you're trying to craft these findings to say people in smaller bodies tend to eat better, tend to not tend to have less incidence of diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, whatever, than this other category. Well, if this other category, regardless of their body size, if they're smoking, if they drink excessively, if they eat a majority of their diet as standard American diet, of course they're going to have a higher risk for heart disease and diabetes. But the problem is they don't really disclose those factors in the Mm -hmm. studies. So going back to the original question, what would I say to this person, right? (laughs) So I want to dig and find out why they believe that statement. 
in the most non-judgmental way possible, right? Just collecting information. So when someone says like, I need to lose weight for my health be like, okay, what does that mean to you? Right? So if they say they have diabetes, then I would say, okay, well let's work on the diabetes. Did you know, we don't actually just have to help you lose weight in order to improve your blood markers. There are food changes that we can make. There are different lifestyle changes that we can make that have nothing to do with your weight whatsoever that I can take a client, no matter size in their body, from having diabetes to not having diabetes anymore without them losing weight. So it's thinking about what aspect of health does that actually mean to that person and also defining what health means to them. Because for a lot of people, and this is the marketing that we've been inundated with our whole lives, health equals your body size. If you believe that, which most people do, of course you believe you need to lose weight for your health because you believe that health equals your weight. So of course, if you're in a larger body, you would believe that if you make your body smaller, you're going to be healthier. So it's really unpeeling all of these layers of how do they define health? How can we redefine health? What are the physical symptoms that they're experiencing that they would like to improve upon? And then starting to work on those. And there's also the anxiety part of this too, right? The relationship with food. What's your relationship with your body? And how do you interact with food on a daily basis? How do you feel about your body? Why are you trying to control your body size? All of the layers of that. So complicated answer, but it's basically, if someone asks me that question, the short answer is I want to peel back all the layers and figure out what actually they want to work on aside from the weight loss and then figure out how can we work on those things regardless of body size. Awesome. I love that. Why do we believe it? I can definitely speak from experience that when my body was the smallest, I was the least healthy that I've ever been. So it's those two things don't go together. And I love the way that you're talking about this, about focusing on the root of it and like, what, what do we actually want from this? Because the intention behind that and behind like, for example, if the person's very sedentary, the intention behind now we're starting to move, it's not every time I move, I'm doing it because I have to burn a certain amount of calories because I'm trying to change my body because I need it to look like this. It's I'm going to move because it feels good. And I know that that's nourishing me. And so the way that you approach it, it's, it's not a stressor in your life. It becomes something that you're doing for yourself and for your health. And the intentions behind those two things are light years apart. Let's talk a little bit about weight stigma. This is a huge thing, especially in the medical community. So we know that there is a correlation, not causation, as you're saying, but we know there is a correlation between being in a larger body and higher rates of disease. But that doesn't mean that the larger body causes those diseases. Can you just speak to sort of how the medical system treats people in larger bodies and how like there are many other reasons why that correlation exists? Yeah. Disclaimer here. (laughs) I personally am operating from like a very thin privileged body. So like I am five, three and I'm a very like small person. Right. So I personally have not experienced this, but that plays into weight stigma. Right. So like, for example, if I walk into a doctor's office, no one's going to assume that I'm unhealthy. Even if I have cancer and people don't know that if I have heart disease, diabetes, you wouldn't assume that just looking at me and the size of my body, 
which is so important to note that that is a degree of privilege that right. a lot of people that are naturally in, naturally in smaller bodies don't understand that they have, but we, we do walk around with a certain level of privilege and that people aren't just assuming those things when they see us. So I think that's a great point. Right. So starting with that and then, you know, on the flip side, if I was in a larger body, I walk around and people, let's say uneducated people, right? assume that I must be unhealthy because again, we go back to, we equate health with size and health with appearance and all of these things. Appearance equals value in our society. And it has been that way, especially for women for thousands of years, Mm -hmm. way back to when we used to be sold off for cows and everything (laughs) like, you know, for husbands and money and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So when A person in the larger body walks into a doctor's office. They're immediately judged just by the size of their body. For many practitioners, and not all of them, right? People are getting woke and stuff. But you might walk into a doctor's office and people just assume that you're unhealthy. They assume that you eat like crap. They assume that your blood markers must be wonky. They assume that you're lazy, undisciplined, unmotivated, that you don't work out. Even though you have no idea just by looking at this person any of those things, a more like potent or I guess maybe relatable example for a lot of people would be like, say you are where you are right now with your body size. And then 10 months from now, you don't see we're all quarantined for 10 months, you know, too real, but let's be a little bit joking here. Right. So let's hope it's not 10 months. Holy shit. It it won't be 10 (laughs) months, but you know, say it's a couple of months and say for whatever reason, like you get sick or, you know, something happens, maybe you're recovering from an eating disorder and you gain like 50 pounds or something like that. Many people assume, oh, she just let herself go. I wonder what happened to her. Did she stop exercising? Did she stop caring about what she was eating? All of these assumptions come up related to health and weight and appearance just because someone's body changed. So for example, like in my personal life, I assumed that many people were thinking this about me when I was going through recovery from my eating disorder. Because like, Again, I am a very small frame person and I had to gain about 50 pounds in my eating disorder recovery to get my period back, to get my health back, right? But 50 pounds on a smaller framed person, like you can see it. There's a big difference there. So who knows what people were thinking, but that's what I was assuming that they were thinking. And that's almost even more damaging than people actually thinking it themselves. And you don't, care or, you know, you're able to distance yourself from that. But it's not just the medical field either, or like what other people are assuming. It's institutionalized at this point. There are larger body people who can't fit into bus seats, who can't fit into movie theater seats, who can't fit into roller coasters, you know, and they have to go around every single day thinking about that. I never have to think about whether I can fit into an airplane seat or whether I'm going to fit in my car or I'm going to fit, you know, any of these different things, food. Everybody has their own issues with food, but this is a whole nother layer that you don't even think about as much if you're in a smaller body because I can walk out and no one's going to be judging me just for my body size. Nobody's going to be making assumptions about me and the food that I eat and the exercise that I do just because of the way that my body looks. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of one part of the conversation of weight stigma. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I know. It's a massive conversation. I think that there's one thing that's really 
really prevalent as I learn more and more about health and nutrition. I just realized how much of an effect stress really has on every single marker of health. And think about the stress that you feel from that level of discrimination being there in every aspect of your life. So when we just think about that, like that can attribute to a lot of these diseases that we see more in larger bodies. It's not just the fact that they're in larger bodies, right? Like we have to realize how diet culture is imposing itself on these people and that that can have a huge effect too, just from that constant stress. Yeah. The stress response can be a really big factor of inflammation, right? And then there are so many downstream effects of having chronically elevated cortisol levels, which then can dip off. And it's really interesting because, you know, we're talking about diabetes and insulin resistance before, and the newer understanding of adrenal fatigue or adrenal conditions is that it's more like cortisol resistance similar to insulin resistance rather than, oh, your adrenals are tired. Your body's mm-hmm. just stopping making cortisol, which like if your body stopped making cortisol, you would die basically. Right. So like that's not happening, right? But so when we think about that and all of the physiological things that happen when the body releases cortisol one time, like your adrenaline starts pumping, your blood pressure rises, like you, the stored glycogen blood sugar in your muscles gets pulled into your bloodstream so that you can run from a tiger or, you know, whatever you need to do. But this happens when people are experiencing discrimination, when you're anxious about food and your body all the time, you're in a constant state of tension of fight or flight. And that has a lot of ramifications, not only for hormonal issues down the line, for insulin resistance, for cravings, for all of these different things. But then it also has really big implications for inflammation, right? So I wonder, you know, how does the cortisol stress response caused by food anxiety, body anxiety, discrimination, weight stigma, how does that impact the physiological, pathological disease process for things like high blood pressure, for Mm -hmm. diabetes, for heart disease, for, you know, all of these different things. I mean, sure, it might, it's probably not the only cause, right? Like there's a lot of other things going on there, but it's probably a big factor that we don't even really talk about that much. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, I want to talk a little bit about weight cycling, this thing that you and I know well, after having gone through many cycles of being on and off diets and all of this stuff, but Why is weight cycling actually quite dangerous? Yeah. Disclaimer, I'm not a weight cycling expert. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of really good information on weight cycling in the book, Health at Every Size, with a lot of research behind it, if anyone wants to um, really dig into that. But in general, if people don't know what weight cycling is, it's the weight-associated changes that go along with chronic dieting and chronic yo-yo dieting and being kind of on and off the wagon, right? So all of us that are listening to this podcast, especially as women, have probably weight cycled at some point, right? You get to a certain point in your life and you're like, ooh, I want to diet for the first time. And you drop a lot of weight. And then you go off the diet and you go back up. And then you go down and you go back up. And people can commonly tell you like, oh, every time I do this diet, I lose 20 pounds and then I gained it all back and more. And then, you know, it's back and forth. And in terms of this damage that this can cause, let's talk about the mental emotional aspect first. This messes with you, right? Like, and not even talking about on a chemical level, but like 
what it does to your brain when you say lose weight and then people are complimenting you and you feel so good because you, again, appearance equals value and health equals weight. You're like, oh, I'm being good. Like I did so well, but at the same time you feel super restrictive and you're hungry all the time and you're not actually happy on the inside and figuring out like, wait, am I supposed to be happy? Is this how I'm supposed to live my life? Just with only eating 1200 calories all the time, which by the way, is the dietary recommendation for someone who's three years old. So if you're eating 1200 calories, you're not eating enough unless you're a toddler, but And then the positive reinforcement that goes along with that, then you break or you fall off the wagon or you stop doing the diet, right? And you you go back to start eating normally. (laughs) Right. You go back to your normal, whatever your normal is. Now your normal is bad because you gained weight, because you went back to your normal weight, because you restricted for so long that your metabolism was so compromised that you actually probably gained over where your normal weight was before. So now you feel horrible. Nobody's giving you the compliments anymore. The new clothes that you bought when you were skinnier don't fit anymore. And it's a constant reminder that you're a failure because you went off the diet. So then we go back into the, you know, the whole 30 cycle that we were talking about. The only way that I can feel in control again is to go back on that diet. So you go back on the diet, but here's the thing. It doesn't work as well as it did the first time because it never does because your body is an adaptation machine and it's very smart. So then you lose a little bit less weight than you did the first time, but at least you feel a little bit better, right? Because you're doing something, you know, we're such a productive culture. We're all obsessed with productivity and we have to be doing something. But so you keep going through these cycles of feeling good about yourself, but that's attached to restriction and then morality. And then you feel bad about yourself because you gain more weight. And then you assume that other people are thinking, oh, she just got lazy. She stopped doing her workout plan. She's not doing her diet anymore, you know, whatever. And then it's just a constant yo-yo dieting mental cluster F, right? That's just like, (laughs) It's so bad for you. And then anxiety-wise, the this weight cycling can be really, really bad for anxiety and depression because when we think about the deprivation of foods, like it changes your whole relationship with food. It changes your whole relationship with body, with your body. This doesn't even go into the hormonal piece of it, right? If we're talking about the physical side of it, What's happening to your blood sugar if you're constantly restricting all of this sugar and then you're having a huge influx of all of this sugar because you're binging on all of the things that you're not allowed to, right? That can definitely lead you into some insulin resistance. But then also the hormonal piece of it, if we're talking more about carbohydrates, women don't do well on super low carbohydrate diets because it increases your cortisol response. Here we go with the stress response again and all of the inflammation that's associated with that. There's also something, if you're a person who goes to the gym, if you're an athlete or anything, there's something called the female athlete triad. And this can lead to people losing their periods. It can lead to early onset osteoporosis. It can lead to many, many, many thyroid conditions, hormonal issues. There's a lot of medically bad things that can happen if we keep weight cycling. And again, I'm not a weight cycling expert. So there's probably so much more about this that I haven't even really gotten to dig into the research yet because it's not my like expertise. But how do you help people when they're in this? They, we still like go through these cycles and we still, for whatever reason, like crave being at that low weight, right? Like fitting into that lowest size of gene that we have. Like we still are always obsessed with that. Even if we listen to this and we hear what you're saying and we understand it's not good for us. 
how do you help people become more confident and calm and happy with how they are at their natural weight, where their body wants to be? How do you help people with that? A lot of our food issues are rooted in body image. We use food and we use exercise as a way to try and control our appearance. We're trying to control our appearance because appearance equals value, weight equals health. We want to control the opinions and the judgment and the thoughts that other people have about us. This is a lot of the time a type A person, a perfectionist type of person, a pleasing, people pleasing type of person thing. I fit the description for all of those things. And that those were many of the things that played into my eating disorder, right? And so one of the things that I, within my scope of practice, can do as a practitioner, because I'm not a therapist, right? The first thing that I do is recommend that people go to a therapist. (laughs) Because this this stuff is deep, right? And it is not comfortable for many people to do this stuff. So do not recommend doing this on your own because this stuff can be rooted in childhood. Like it's not just diet culture messaging. It's so much deeper than that. Right. And it took me a long time to figure out that for me personally, one of the main influences on my negative body image growing up was my mom was a chronic dieter and she was always basically like talking badly about herself and saying she was so fat. And uh, you guys don't know my mom, but she's even smaller than I am, right? So then she's always one of the smallest people in the room. So then what happens is like, oh, if that really small person thinks she's fat and thinks she's, you know, all these bad things, what must she be thinking about me? You know, and then as a kid who was, I don't like using the term overweight, right? But, and, but I also wasn't in a larger body. So like I was a bigger kid, let's say, right? Then then seeing my mom doing all these diets and stuff really messed me up. And then when you start hearing in middle school and high school of all of these little girls that are dieting and they're already way too small. And then when you have a boyfriend like I did that said you would be so much prettier if you were a little bit skinnier, that messes you up too. Yeah. And it took me a lot of, you know, therapy to figure out where that came from. So it's figuring out, you know, what's your why? What are the layers? Where is this coming from? A lot of what I do is I think like a gateway to therapy basically is like, I ask my clients a lot of questions. I let them talk because when you're a practitioner, people just tend to share a lot of things with you. Right. But knowing that like, I'm not a therapist, so we can start the conversation and then I'll say, you know, this is a great thing to explore where this comes from with a therapist. And then what we really do since I am a nutritionist, right. Is we talk about how does that translate into your food choices? How does that translate into your choices around your exercise and stuff like that? Because like I said before, a lot of this is rooted in body image and the fear of being judged and having prejudice against you and you know being afraid of gaining weight and getting fat because we see the way that larger bodied people are treated in this society And especially how, you know, women, let's be honest, we're basically like objectified as sex symbols all the time. And some people love that, but for people in larger bodies, that's not them. Let's say the vast majority of them, right? And it's really hard for people to just basically be absent from that type of culture. What's your why? What's the why behind the why? Like trying to pull back all of the layers and then like go therapy. 
Yeah, 100%. I'm such a big advocate of therapy, I think, for everyone. And I hate that it still has sort of like a weird stigma attached to it because I think it's one of the best things that you can do because it just helps you learn about yourself and get to your why behind Mm -hmm. so many of these things. As you talk about how it affected you so much when people around you talked about dieting, but maybe, maybe they were in a smaller body than you. And so like, how did that make you feel? It's interesting because since recovering from my eating disorder and working through disordered eating habits and like it's all a journey, right? So it's like there's no arrival point to any of this. But the thing right now for me that's the most triggering is I have someone close to me in my life who is in a what I see as a very small body and they are constantly talking about dieting and losing weight and throwing out numbers on weights and that's the one thing that still loops me into some of these disordered eating thoughts and pulls me back into that because then I go, well, I must not be good enough. And I think it just comes down to this fear of judgment that we have. We're just terrified of it and terrified of the, I don't know, the, the negativity that, that would come from what we think would come from being in a larger body. Like we're just scared. And I think it's something that we really need to understand more for ourselves so that we can break away from that and we can understand our value beyond the size of our body or how other people see our body, right? It's got to come way more from who we are and deep down within ourselves. So it's really important work, but very hard work and many layers to it. Let's talk a little bit about your blog, Real Food with Dana. You've had it for quite a while now. First of all, I want to know what some of your all-time favorite recipes that you've posted on it are. They're all my babies. How can I choose? No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) So I haven't been doing as much recipe development lately um, because I've been trying to focus more on the clinical nutrition side of things. So I started my blog 2014. So I've got five solid years of recipes on there. Some of my favorite ones that I have made, um, I'm not a very good baker. So when I finally get baking recipes right, I get really excited. So my family has this traditional recipe for New Jersey style crumb cake. And for all of your listeners who've never been to like a New Jersey bakery, um, it's not like an Entenmann's crumb cake, which is like three quarters or like seven eighths, like yellow cake. And then like a little bit of coffee cake crumbs on the top. This ratio is reversed. It's basically like three quarters (laughs) crumbs and like one quarter of actual cake. So One of my favorite recipes and like recipe shoots that I've done of all time is a pumpkin crumb cake recipe and turn it into muffins. And it's all gluten-free so I could finally eat it because that was the other thing is I couldn't eat this recipe for years until I figured out how to make it, right? So I'm a big Harry Potter fan. So the recipe shoot that I did had like a bunch of Harry Potter books in it. And I got these really cool um, like cupcake liners that that were made of book pages. I just like had a really nerdy time around that. I really like doing a uh, slow cooker and instant pot recipes. So one of my favorite ones lately is this sweet potato chickpea curry that I really like. And then I have all sorts of recipes for many kinds of guacamole because I love cool. guacamole. <laughs> and then also margaritas because those are like two of my favorite things together. My best friend from growing up is a vegetarian. And so us finding things that were both gluten-free and vegetarian to cook together was like really hard. So um, Mexican food is one where it's like there's a lot of overlap. So I've got guacamole recipes. I've got margarita recipes. I have an elote recipe, which is like a Mexican street corn, but I made like a dip recipe of it. Yeah, those are some of my favorites. (laughs) Incredible. I'm going to have to go try all of those. That sounds awesome. (laughs) Cool. 
So you're talking about how you kind of moved away from the recipe development side of things, although it sounds like you have an amazing archive that I'm definitely going to be diving into. But (laughs) I want to know how your philosophy surrounding the blog has evolved a little bit um, since you started it back in 2014. At first, it was just recipes. And it was, I want to prove to people that even if you have a chronic health condition, you can still eat really delicious food. Because when I found out that being celiac meant that I could never eat gluten again. My Italian self was like, oh my God, what am I ever going to eat? Like I can't eat pasta. I can't eat bagels. Like my whole family is from New Jersey, New York. So that's like a big thing that we always eat is we always are eating Italian food. So figuring out like one, like what the heck could I eat? And then once I finally started to learn how to cook, because I also didn't know how to cook before this, people were asking me for my recipes. Like my parents would ask me if I could have, if I could give, write down the recipe that I made so they could share it with whoever. And it was just kind of like an organic thing. I was actually, I had gotten into landscape and travel photography in high school. So I had a DSLR, like a fancy camera basically. And it was a really fun creative outlet for me while I was in, while I was working in politics and then quit to go back to grad school for nutrition So it was a nice creative outlet and doing something different rather than just like digging into the research around food. And so when I was in school, it started to evolve into doing more of the nutrition science. I started talking more about thyroid conditions and adrenal fatigue, more that I was learning and then how to tie in, you know, different foods for certain health conditions. And so for a while it was like food is medicine, right? But then realized that could really play into some people's taking the power of food too far to orthorexic tendencies, disordered eating and perpetuating this cycle, right? That's when I was doing Whole30 coaching. So I was doing some Whole30 content for them, um, you know, like how to make it easier, how to do it on a budget, you know, stuff like that. And then really over the past two years, it's been talking more about how to get out of the diet cycle how to improve your relationship with food, how to improve your relationship with your body, how to stop yo-yo dieting, how to get out of the whole 30 cycle. And then also how to use nutrition in a really neutral sort of way, instead of attaching morality to food, instead of attaching good and bad, yes and no, instead of doing these really strict dietary protocols and focusing more on Well, some people might need to do a protocol, but we need to do the mindset work first so that you're prepared for that. So that if you have to go on this protocol for a very real medical reason, you're not just going to fall back into the same patterns before that got you into this condition in the first place, right? So now coupling the blog with the podcast, bringing in the power of neutral nutrition with healing your relationship with food and your body. And that's kind of what the blog has become over the years. That's awesome. Okay. I just have one final question for you. It's the question I ask everyone that comes on this podcast. I want to know what makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning. Well, the first thing would be my dog. What kind (laughs) of dog? I have a Brittany Spaniel. So she's like a little orange and white. Um, So every single morning I walk down the stairs and when I let her out of her bed, she like comes up and puts her paws on my shoulders and just like gives me a hug. So I always am excited for that because like, how could you not be? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I am also really excited to get out of bed in the morning because I have my own business and I built this thing from the ground up and I get to help people 
every single day, whether I'm seeing my individual clients or I'm doing a fun podcast interview and connecting with people like you that I would never get to do otherwise, right? Like that's why I love the podcast. It's always so fun. And just like connecting with people that I would never get to do, even if I had a brick and mortar office location, right? Cause that would still be local to the DC area, which is where I live. But I connect with people literally all over the world. Like I have clients that live in Europe. I have clients that live in Africa. I have clients that live in Asia, like all over the US and Canada, like literally everywhere. And it is so cool because nutrition also is evolving every single day. So it can be really overwhelming as a clinician, as a practitioner, because the research is constantly evolving. And like one thing that you knew today might not be true tomorrow, right? Or you might find something else out. But then you also start to build these relationships with people and they start to trust you and you get to help them feel better and really like improve their overall life and well-being as they're improving their relationship with food and their body and that sticks with them forever. Yeah, forever, exactly. And it's so cool like being in this virtual world. I mean, I think we're learning it a lot now since everyone's in a quarantine and we're learning just how much can become virtual and online, but yeah, having the chance to connect with people that are all over the world. And, you know, I've loved having this podcast for the same reason, because I get to talk to um, so many amazing people that are elsewhere also. So that's great. If people want to find your blog or learn more about you, or maybe work with you in some way, how do they find you? How do they go about doing that? Yeah. So you can find everything at real food with Dana, all spelled out.com not the all spelled out in the URL, realfoodwithdana.com. <laughs> um, so that's where you can find my blog, all of the recipes. My podcast is Real Talk with Dana. Anywhere podcasts can be found also on my website. Um, that's also where you can find out if you want to learn about working with me clinically, that's there. And then the other thing is I'm also, depending on when this comes out in the middle of the coronavirus, right? Um, I'm doing a workshop on how to manage food anxiety and our binge restrict tendencies during the coronavirus. So even if you're not able to attend it live, there will be a link on my website to that as well. This is a crazy time and it's really triggering for a lot of us who are, you know, have been in the yo-yo dieting cycle because there's a lot of unknowns right now when we all feel very anxious and very out of control. So me and my business partner, Christina, just kind of wanted to do something to help people feel a little bit better because even we feel unnerved. No one is immune to this. So we're just trying to help as much as we can. So those are all the places you can find me. For sure. Awesome. That's such a good idea. Thank you so much, Dana. This has been a blast. You provided so much great information. So thank you for sharing your time and coming on today. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? Remember, we release a new episode every Monday morning. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and CastBox. If you're liking what you're hearing, please rate and review the show. Every review really does go a long way. I appreciate every single one of them so, so much. If you're liking what you're hearing on the show, please share it with a family member or friends that you think could benefit from listening to the things that we talk about on How Do You Feel? All right, guys, that's all I have for you this week. Make sure you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today. <laughs>